Amen. Now for um, the spy group, can we put up the catechism question? Uh, This is what you're going to be looking at later tonight. What's our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to say to those who are uh, in the spy, in in the youth group, um, you face a particular temptation that almost none of us, you're, you're the first generation, I think, that has faced this, maybe anyone, anyone under 20. And, and it is this, that uh, we live in a world where this thing is ubiquitous, uh, that, that basically just means it's everywhere. And I hope you're not sitting in church texting right now. Um, I know people who've done it, and they're not young people. Um, but one of the problems is you, you've got instant knowledge. You think, I want to find out something, I'll look here. And you don't look at, at um, things that are, you know, existed before 1990. You just, it's a different world in so many ways. And I was listening to a man this week who's not a Christian saying what a disaster this was and how we needed to get a broader picture and have the wisdom of the ages. And this man who was an, who was an atheist said, we, ought, we need to get the wisdom of the Bible. And that's why I'm delighted that you go to the spy group. I'm delighted that you're here to hear God's word. This morning, uh, I listened to a service from St. Mary's Cathedral in Glasgow. And during the prayer, the minister or whoever it was prayed, let Glasgow flourish, but then missed out the rest of Glasgow's motto. That's the Glasgow motto. But the motto is, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of the word and the praising of his name. How do you think Glasgow or Dundee is going to flourish without the preaching of the word? Well, as some of you know, I've I've said that, uh, God willing, we hope to go to Australia for a couple of years uh, in the the summer. And when I was thinking about things to preach on, we're going to finish with Romans. But in the evening, I want to come to Jeremiah because I think there's a particular message that Jeremiah has that is particularly relevant to us in Scotland today. So we'll we'll spend, over the next few months, we'll spend at least a couple of evenings looking at this. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background to the book. Uh, It's the 13th year of King Josiah. 620 BC was Jeremiah's call, and we know that the fall of of Jerusalem was to occur in 587. So it's a bit like watching a film like the Titanic. You know what's going to happen. Sorry if you've never seen Titanic. The boat sinks. That's, that's, that's what happens. And the whole film's about that. Well, this is what's happening. Jeremiah is prophesying, and we know what happens. Jeremiah prophesied to five kings, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoshakim, and Zedekiah. His uh, name means Yahweh exalts, the great name, Jehovah, the Lord exalts. We know that he grew up in a priest's home. Uh, We know that he would have read Hosea's and Isaiah's prophecies. And we know that he was speaking to a backslidden nation which was plagued by sexual immorality, greed, idolatry. 
So let's just read from uh, Jeremiah chapter 1. It's on page 755. We'll go through the first chapter as much as we can uh, in the time that I've got left. And uh, <clears throat> The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anahoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, king of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Jeremiah, there was a young boy on the throne, a king called Josiah, who'd been on the throne for 12 years. The Reformation that came through Jeremiah didn't begin until his 18th year, which is five years of Jeremiah preaching before he saw any results. And it was funny what Mark was saying. The word of God had largely disappeared from the people of God. And when you read the book of Jeremiah, I, I kind of had this impression that he was like the Leonard Cohen of the Old Testament, just thoroughly miserable. And Isaiah was full of the gospel and Jeremiah was kind of woe, doom, gloom, everything else. But the more I read Jeremiah, the more I'm uh, just amazed at him. There is, there is emotion in Jeremiah. There is pathos in Jeremiah. There is heartache in Jeremiah. The people he loved hated him. He called for repentance to a nation who were incapable of it. He wrestled with God. You will find in Jeremiah loneliness and despair and frustration and anger and hostility and misunderstanding and helplessness. And yet in the midst of that, Jeremiah saw the new covenant and he realized, most deeply realized, that religion was ultimately a matter of the heart, not of the temple. So in this introduction, he's given an impossible task to call the people of Judah to observe God's law when they were on the brink of national and spiritual catastrophe. And if that's not Scotland today, I don't know what is. If that's not the UK today, I don't know what is. We have experienced God's blessing. We've experienced so much in this land, so many glorious chapters, the, the history of the, of the covenanters and the disruption and the missionary movement. This city of Dundee was known as the Geneva of the north, not because it was like uh, Geneva in terms of its buildings, but because it was a, a center of Christianity. Just to uh, give you some idea of this, to me this is astonishing. In 1851, 51% of the people in Dundee attended the free church. Now, I'm not putting that as a mark of spirituality, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying this is astonishing. In the 1820s and 1830s, Dundee was described as a cesspit of iniquity by one of the judges. And then by the time you get to the 1850s, there'd been this incredible renewal that came in this church through McShane, but spread to many other places, and churches were built all over the city. I mean, we're trying to plant a church in Charleston, and we know that Central Baptists are working away planting a church in Loki. Well, these guys, this is not new to this church. So St. David's on the Hilltown. Um, there are numerous church buildings that still exist in this city, and many which have been knocked down, which came during this period. So much so that the new free church, which began in 1843, then had 51% of the population attending the church. 
and about 20 to 25% of the rest of the population were attending other evangelical churches. There was a, a, the church in the center of town, St. Paul's Anglican. There were 4,000 Ulster Protestants, working class men who had been persecuted in Northern Ireland, and they came here. Rather than go to Carolina, uh, the Carolinas, they came to Dundee. And that cathedral, believe it or not, was the center for outreach amongst working people. And they did a tremendous work. You go to that cathedral today and you'll get 50 people and it's one of the churches in the city where the gospel is most derided and most mocked. It's appalling. But then it was a, it was a, a church which really did preach and practice the gospel. There were Baptist churches and they worked together with the Free Church. One of the Baptist, most famous Baptist ministers, two brothers, uh, Robert and James Haldane, they preached here. They came to help with the revival and the renewal. It was a congregational church, which uh, is still here in terms of the building, uh, not in terms of the gospel, and it was filled as well. There was just tremendous blessing that occurred. But then look at where we are today. That's 2010. That was the last figures I had that have any I'm not sure what it is since then. This was a survey that was done by the Bible Society. 8% attend any church in Dundee. Any church. Catholic or whatever. Just 8. And I think that's actually probably quite generous. The Bible is largely banned from education. And the churches have largely abandoned the Bible. And that is a desperate condition. Just go up the road here and you've got McShane Memorial. Built in 1870 as an extension of St. Peter's. Opened by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Baptist minister. He came to preach at it, and I've still got some of the, the, the tickets from that, which uh, greatly amused me because they ask that the collect, as the debt owed on the building is still large, we hope your collection will be large, uh, basically says on the ticket. So these boys knew how to work. Um, but within 100 years, both these churches were being sold. The Free Church en- ended up buying this church. Uh, back and the church up the road ended being sold to a Muslim businessman who was not able to turn it into a restaurant and I I think it's now been turned into a private house. What happened? The church largely abandoned the word of God like Judah. We compromised, we withdrew, we gave up, we've become liberals or in reaction legalists. We still have nice churches, nice people, but precious little backbone, belief, and commitment. And God is calling us, like Jeremiah, to proclaim the word of God to the church, to the people of Scotland. We teach the Bible. People say that's bibliolatry. No, it's teaching Christ. How are people going to get Christ if the Bible is not taught? And Jeremiah faced a problem. Because he'd held to the truth... He was accused of being pessimistic and gloomy. I recall somebody, and I fully understand this, once saying to me, um, sometimes I find it hard coming to church because I find it very difficult to hear what you have to say because sometimes it seems so pessimistic and gloomy. And I thought about that a lot, and I thought, well... In one sense, I hope that's not true. And in another sense, I hope it is. There is, in order to see the hope of Christ, we need to see our need of that hope. 
So that's the task that Jeremiah was given. It's the task we have been given. I'm just going to mention some things. First of all, Jeremiah's predestination. Let's go on to verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Well, we've been looking at this glorious truth of predestination. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he has loved. Jeremiah, recognizing this, was able to stand firm because God said, I've chosen you for this purpose. I didn't choose you because you came from a good school or a good family or because you achieved this or achieved that. I've chosen you to be this prophet. Romans 8, we know it well. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's an old Puritan saying, God's chosen vessels are long in the making. One of the joys for me here is to be with the children, but I do like it when they grow up as well. And you watch children developing into fine young men and young women, and you watch them getting married, and you, watch, and you, and you see things in them that were put into them when they were very, very young. God's Chosen vessels are long in the making. And who knows but what God has prepared people here for in the future. He is always at work. Christ himself, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. And Jeremiah was told, "You, before you were born, I set you apart. He was called from the womb. I made you. I knew you. In Jeremiah 18, we will read about the potter. He was handmade for the task. It wasn't a cruel accident. Psalm 139, we sang, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Here's the thing. If you are an atheist philosophically, a materialist, you have to believe that you yourself are just an accidental collection of chemicals. There is no purpose in you, in your birth, and in your life. And in some ways... What Mark was saying about going and getting drunk, why not? What purpose? There's no purpose. Of course, middle class people can fool themselves that I've got a purpose because it's my job, it's my education and so on. You can say that, but it's not a real purpose. It's just accidental. Everything almost appears to be accidental. But when a Christian looks and says, you created my you, I, am, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, you talk about identity issues. I, I, I do think that we live in a culture where people obsess sometimes about physical appearance. But there isn't a person here who, as a believer in Jesus, cannot go home and look in the mirror and say, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Even you may be ill. You may suffer from some kind of handicap. But you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And to Jeremiah, I think it was just absolutely incredible that he was created in his mother's womb with God intending, having a purpose for him. 
I think this means clearly that none of the circumstances in our lives are accidents. They are all part of God's shaping hand. Grim Harrison says this, the thought that his very existence was a conscious part of divine purpose and not an incidental biological occurrence must have given him a special sense of destiny. You know, without being crude about it, the millions of, of sperm and the, all the potentials and possibilities and everything else. And yet, God knew. When it says knit together, it's not giving you a biological lesson. It's just saying this is that God knew. And that's wonderful. So he was predestined. And then he protested. Look at verses 6 and 7. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. He had a lack of eloquence. He was timid. The task was too great. He was too weak. He was too sensitive. He was too gentle. He did not like controversy or strife. And he says, I cannot, I cannot. You've called me, but I cannot, I cannot. How many of us say that? God has to thrust out laborers into the harvest field. We tend to look and we tend to say, well, I'm looking for people who are like this and this and this and this. And it astounds us, the people that God uses. I'm not, I don't mean any offense to you, Mark, but God using a boy from Motherwell to come and preach the gospel in the middle of Dundee, I think that's wonderful. And I think that's you know, people wouldn't sit down and say, well, that's how, that's how we're going to do it. Or when Robert Murray McShane came here, he was a posh kid from Edinburgh, and he came to the most poor and working class area of Dundee, and the people loved him, and he loved them. But we would have sat down and said, oh, no, you shouldn't be here. You should be somewhere else. You've got a weak constitution. How will the people understand you? You're the son of a top lawyer. How, how are you going to mix with these people who live 20 to a house? And he did. He walked around. And as some of you know, he died because he was visiting people and caught a, a, a disease. God uses people. Jeremiah protested, but he's asking the wrong question. It shouldn't be, who am I? It should be, what do you want me to do? What's my instructions? Where do you want me to go? It's not about you. It's about God. And some of us have to make decisions. As you can appreciate, myself and Annabelle have had to make decisions about things. And, and you can think about it in terms of things you would like to do and what you think and everything. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, Lord, what do you want me to do? And you pray. Alexander Stewart says this, It is the worker who is most, un, most conscious of his own unfitness for the task that is also most dependent on the power of God for success. His weakness is a channel through which the divine energy flows and through which, accordingly, the divine name is glorified. We're weak, but God uses the weak to shame the powerful. And then there's Jeremiah's power. Look at verse 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. God's answer, don't be afraid, I'm God, I'm with you, I've given my words, I've appointed you. How dare we as Christians be phobic about anything? I hope you're not transphobic or Islamophobic or homophobic, because phobia just means fear and having fear of people. No, 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 no. We may be afraid of 
the devil. We may be afraid of ourselves. We may be afraid of our own sin. We may be afraid of our culture. We may be concerned and worried and, and heartbroken and ripped apart by what we see. And God says, no, you go because I have told you and I have appointed you. Isaiah 6 Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, says Isaiah, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Why you say, I wish that would happen to me. It is. What do you think's happening just now? This is God bringing a coal from the altar. God is speaking to you. God is putting his arm around you. God is calling you. If I can put it this way, God does not hold us at arm's length and tell us to go and do this, and then he might, as a reward, give us a hug. What he does is he hugs us to say, you're mine. I've called you. Now get on with it. You're mine. I've called you. Get on with it. Jeremiah's power does not come from within himself. The power comes from God. God gives power. And again, we need absolutely to believe that and to trust that. Nothing that we can do will work for eternity without the power of God. And then there was his purpose. Look at it in in verse uh, 9. The Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, See, I put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The idea is given. Um, the idea is not Jeremiah saying, Look, I've been chosen and you guys haven't. Jeremiah was called to serve and he calls us to serve. He was called to be a prophet. He was called to be a communicator of God's message and to tell God's word. He wasn't really called to be a perceptive social commentator, although you'd hope he would understand what he was speaking into. But we have the word of the prophets made more certain. We live in the new age of the spirit. We live in a time when all the Lord's people are prophets. We have the word of the prophets made more certain. You will do well to pay attention to it, says Peter, as to a light shining to a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If only God would speak, if only God would send us a prophet. God has, and God has given us his word. Go, he says, whatever I send you, and say whatever I tell you. There's a destructive side to Jeremiah's ministry. He deals with idolatry and sin. There's a constructive side. It means nothing less than the building of the kingdom of God among the ruins of a world that's been turned upside down through the energy of the divine word. If God is going to build his church, he's going to turn this city upside down and it is going to be incredibly painful. And God will, out of the ashes, raise his kingdom. He did it before, he did it again. When the plague went through this city at the time of George Wishart, you know the story of the Wishart Arch. Wishart stood on the arch, the gateway, the entrance into the city on the east side, and the people inside were all dying from the plague. Nobody was allowed out. Nobody could go in. And Wishart stood on the arch. He preached the word to those outside the city. Then he jumped off the arch and went into the city. He didn't die of the plague. He died when he was martyred in St. Andrews 
for preaching the gospel as a young man. It was never going to be easy, but this city was turned upside down. That's what God does now. God has to root out, to weed, to plow before we grow in the knowledge of God. You'll know, by the way, that he was a prophet to the nations, although Jeremiah never went anywhere else. But Israel was going to be that blessing. I think God has called you as a Christian. Maybe you're an elder. Maybe you're a preacher. Maybe you're just a young person. I say just a young person. That's because I envy you. Because it is, this is the most incredibly exciting time to be a Christian in this country. Incredibly exciting time. God has called us to root out, to expose, to face up to the sin and the desperate condition we're in and to build up the kingdom of God by by proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It's his church, not ours. And we only build it by proclaiming and living the glory, love and beauty of Jesus. And then Jeremiah uses a couple of pictures. Look at verse 11. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I'm watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Almond tree, in the Hebrew, almond rod and watching over are two words that are almost identical. And this is a play on words that is being used. And it's simply saying this, God's word will be fulfilled quickly. When everything seems dead, it's the first bud of spring. And God's silent, creative energy bursts out. The other image, it's the boiling pot. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdom, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods and in worshiping what their hands have made. It's a large cooking pot, as you can see, placed on embers. It was going to tip over. And the image that God is using is of spilling southwards from Syria into Israel. And God is saying the Assyrians are going to come as agents of judgment. Ashur Bananipal, if I can pronounce that name, the king of Assyria, died in the year of Jeremiah's call. And his empire was in chaos. Human aggressiveness was again creating chaos. And God says, yes. But even in all that chaos, I'm going to build my church. A church which is going to be judged for its idolatry, for being conformed to this world. Our culture serves the gods of mammon and sex and the church far too often follows and God judges the church for that. But he does so in order to show mercy. Because there's the promise that comes in verse 17 to 19. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Today I've made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests and the people of the land. They will fight against you but will not overcome you for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. He has to say, what God has commanded, not what he wants to say, not what he wants the people to hear. We have to get it clear what God is saying, not what our emotions, our desires, our moods, our wisdom, the enlightenment of our society want. We have to to say God's word. 
and we are to get ready and to stand fast. The storm is coming. Here, the people of the land probably refers to the landowners, the ones who were powerful. They're going to get, go against you, Jeremiah is told. The rulers of the land are going to go against you. Its priests are going to go against you and the people of the land. And what does God say to Jeremiah? He says, now you need to work very gently and try and win them over. And as you win them over, there'll be a trickle-down effect to the rest. That's not what he says. He says, you go and you preach the word. And it's these people who will try and stop it. Why do Christians seek to cultivate the rulers and the rich and the powerful and the influential? No, take them on. You'll be a fortified city and an iron pillar. Jeremiah lasted over 40 years in the most turbulent times because God made him a fortified city and an iron pillar. We, and I have done this, and I confess, I, I, I repent of my sin, have spoken sometimes of the snowflake generation. You know, you've got the millennials, and then after that, it's the snowflakes. The, the young people who apparently, you know, can't cope with anything. But I don't think that, I think that was wrong to think like that. Because I think so much of what we might call snowflakes are the older Christians, many of us. It's our generation that turned away. It's our generation that kept quiet. What do you expect the young people to do with the example that's been set them? Of course, there are exceptions, and in fact, many exceptions for that. We are very, very thankful. But we have to be ready to stand fast. The storm is coming. And I love verse 19, the great assurance there. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. Jeremiah's personal defects have to be overcome to serve God. Christ's atonement saves us from ourselves as well as from sin. We are, according to Revelation 17, 14, to be God's called and chosen and faithful. And God is not ashamed to be called our God. So we come simply, just very simply to this. What's your calling? Have you come to the re realization yet of what God has called you to do? Because it's not just pastors and preachers. Every Christian has a calling have you reached the point where you can honestly say, I was made for this? When you say, like Eric Little, when I run, I feel his pleasure. God calls, are we listening? God calls all people everywhere to repent. And Jesus calls, come to me, all you who, are labor, who labor and are heavy laden. We individually and collectively repent and turn to God from our sin God calls Scotland to repent and Dundee to repent and St. Peter's to repent and me to repent and the elders to repent, deacons, members, those of you who are not yet Christians, we are all to repent. And that means turning away from our sins and turning towards the God who so graciously invites us and accepts us. remember a prayer meeting once. Chris will forgive me for this. I remember coming to a wee prayer meeting that we had through in the hall there. And Murdo McLeod prayed. And Murdo liked the AV language and used words, come over the mountain of our provocation, be thou our Ebenezer, which 
Um, but Murdo was absolutely wonderful. He was lovely because he really meant it. And he pleaded with the Lord. And I remember being so encouraged because Chris played next and he hadn't a clue who Ebenezer was. <laughs> and I just remember Chris praying in Chris's own way. And I remember it, both of them, there was deep emotion and there was tears. And I was thinking, yes, when will we care for the people of this city? When will we care enough to cry over the people, not about ourselves, but to cry over those who are lost? I do believe that Jesus weeps over Scotland, over Dundee. I believe he does stand at the door and ask to come in. And incidentally, in that picture of the Laodicean church in Revelation, it's the church that Christ wants to come into. I believe he asks us to follow him. And I think the message is just very simple. Will we? Will we follow Christ and seek to live for him and shine like stars in a dark generation? Let's pray. Lord, bless your word to us and help us to understand and to apply it. Thank you uh, again for the privilege we have of being able to share together with Mark and the Hope Church. And we pray, our God, that we would see many churches being faithful to your word, being raised up in this city, that people would come to know you, that a day would come when none of us would need to say to our neighbor, know the Lord, because all would know you. And grant our God that we would have that vision, because we know that without vision, the people perish. And we pray for this nation. We pray for your cause throughout our land at a time of great confusion. Lord, you may judge us and there may be many things that can go wrong, but we ask that out of the ashes you would raise up something new and beautiful and glorious to Jesus Christ. In your name, amen. We're going to finish by singing again from that psalm. We'll sing the new Scottish version, Psalm 139. Um, we'll stand to sing, Were I to cross from land to land or sail afar by sea, descend the depths or climb the heights, my Lord remains with me. And we'll stand and sing this, and then please remain standing for the benediction. <laughs>